I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, which is uh, Luke 19, verses 1 through 20. Luke 19, verses, or sorry, 1 through 10, not 1 through 20. I didn't memorize those next 10 verses, so. We're starting a new sermon series uh, this morning. Um, As we already mentioned, it's the first Sunday of Lent. And uh, Lent kind of has this reputation sometimes as more of a Catholic thing than a Protestant thing, but I would make the argument that it's simply a Christian thing. Um, Lent is a season of repentance. It's a season of reflection. Um, To some degree, it's a season of mourning, but it's also a season of anticipation and hope. In fact, every Sunday in Lent is meant to be considered sort of a mini Easter, looking forward to and anticipating the joy of Easter Sunday morning. That's why historically, if you give something up during Lent and you fast during Lent from something, that's only six days. Sundays, you're actually meant to break your fast. So if you've already given up chocolate or whatever, you can indulge today, theologically. Um, so, we're anticipating that joy, and that's what this whole season really does. And we're going to start this series uh, by looking at Zacchaeus the tax collector and our desires as human beings and how they need to be oriented around God. And so, this is what the Gospel writer Luke writes uh, to his original audience, the early Christians, as well as to us as Christians today. Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And this is what he writes. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him because Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately because I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. When all the people saw this, they began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give away, uh, here and now I give away half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, when I was younger, um, long before I met Sarah, my wife, thankfully, I was pretty immature when it came to dating. I don't know what young man isn't, but um, I definitely was in that boat. And I'm ashamed to admit this now, but I was actually kind of a serial dater. I would become interested uh, in a girl, um, start a relationship, uh, pursue her, but then I would quickly lose interest. And it wouldn't be long before I would initiate a breakup and move on to pursuing someone else instead. And this was a pattern that repeated itself over and over, both in high school and in college for me. Uh, For instance, I remember one relationship specifically my freshman year of college. This was right towards the uh, start of my first semester at Calvin University. And I became interested in a a girl that I met in the first few weeks, uh, we'll call her Michelle. And um, Michelle and I hit it off. We were running in similar friend groups at the time. We had a lot of uh, the same interests, uh, liked doing a lot of the same things. We talked on the phone a lot, which used to be a thing. Um, And I spent weeks pursuing her. I asked her out repeatedly. She kept saying no, because I think she could tell that I was pretty immature and wasn't really ready for a relationship. Um, But dating her seemed like all I could think about. And finally, she said yes. And I was over the moon. And the relationship started, and it was absolutely great for about three weeks. And then, for whatever reason, like so many times before, I just started to lose interest. And I wasn't even really sure why. 
we actually kept dating for a little while longer because I was trying to figure out, like, you know, I was very interested in this relationship, pursued her, kept asking her out, uh, and, and all of a sudden she said yes, and, and now I'm losing interest. Um, and so I tried to figure that out, but after uh, just a few months together, it was like two or three months, um, we ended up breaking up, and it wasn't long before I was off pursuing someone else instead. Have you ever had something like that? Maybe it, maybe it wasn't a relationship with another person like it was for me, um, but something that you wanted, something you felt that you needed to have, something that you desired and pursued only to find that once you finally got it, it didn't actually satisfy. I would assume that most of us have had things like that at one point or another, right? Maybe it was a job or a promotion. Maybe it was something tangible like a new house or a new car or some sort of possession. But we all have that, right? We all have something that we yearn for, something that we want, something we desire, only to have that experience of once we finally get it, it turns out it's not what we really wanted. Well, that's actually what we see going on in this text for this morning, too. And that's because that's what was going on for this tax collector that Jesus meets here in Luke 19, Zacchaeus. Put simply, Zacchaeus wants something. He feels that he needs it. He desires it. The only problem is that once he has it, he realizes that it doesn't satisfy him the way that he thought it would. And instead, what he really desires is something, or actually more accurately, someone else. You see, Zacchaeus' initial desire was for money. Uh, Luke doesn't come right out and say that here in this text, but it's pretty clear from what he writes about Zacchaeus that that's what was going on for him. Now, we actually don't know that much about Zacchaeus. I know we all sing that song in Sunday school, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, so we think we've got a pretty good familiarity with him. Luke is actually the only gospel writer who mentions Zacchaeus. And even what he says here, he doesn't give us too many details about him. And yet, despite his brevity, Luke does tell us at least two very important things about Zacchaeus. First, he was a chief tax collector. And second, he was wealthy. And while on the surface those two things might not tell us very much about Zacchaeus, once you peel back the layers and you take the cultural and historical context into account here, it becomes apparent that Zacchaeus, at least before he met Jesus, was more or less obsessed with money. You see, back in that time and culture, that's the reason that you would become a tax collector, really. Um, truth be told, there were few benefits to being a tax collector in first century Jewish society. Um, we'll talk about this more uh, both tonight and also next week. But being a tax collector meant that you were ostracized from your community. No one wanted to have anything to do with you. You would be disowned by your friends and family members. And you would even be re considered religiously unclean to the extent that you could not worship at the temple the way that other people could. And so that begs the question, why would someone want to be a tax collector then, right? If you ended up ostracized from your community, disowned by those who loved you, you couldn't even go to worship at the temple, why would somebody do that? Well, the answer is because it was one of the easiest ways to make money at the time. You see, the tax system back then was open to numerous forms of abuse. Um, this will probably sound strange to us today, but there are actually no set tax rates in the Roman Empire at the time. 
Instead, what the Roman authorities would do in a system called tax farming is they would bid out the position of tax collector to whoever offered them the most money. So, for instance, let's say that a tax collector position was open someplace in in the uh, province of Palestine. What the Roman authorities would do is they would post it on sort of an ancient job board of sorts, and then different people would come in and more or less make them offers, right? So the first applicant would come in and say, um, I think I can raise 20,000 denarii for you. Uh, okay, that sounds good. Next guy would come in and say, that last guy said 20,000. I can beat that. I'll do 25,000 denarii for you. And then still another person would come in and say, I can top both of them. I'll get you 30,000 denarii. And that's the way that it would go until finally someone would offer so much that no one else would be able to top them, and then that person got the job. I'm sure you can see how a system like this would inevitably lead to problems, right? Um, I mean, for starters, since tax collectors were always competing for the job by offering the authorities more and more taxes, taxes were constantly going up. It wasn't like the Romans were going to say no to more money, right? And so what kept happening is tax collectors just kept collecting more and more and more, and everyday citizens felt the squeeze more and more and more. Related to that, because the tax rate was always changing, as were the collectors, most people had no idea how much the collectors were actually supposed to collect. So one year it was 20000 then all of a sudden it was 25000 now this year it's 30000 And all the average person had to go on was what the tax collector told them that they themselves owed as part of that big chunk that they were going to give to the authorities. But unfortunately, because they had no idea what the, coll- what the collector had actually promised the authorities, they also had no idea how much they were actually supposed to give. And so the collectors could pretty much tell them whatever they wanted. And here's the thing. The Roman authorities didn't know how much the collectors would collect either. Because tax collection was a contracted position with little oversight, the authorities had no idea how much the collectors were actually taking from people. And so as a result, what many tax collectors did back then was they collected more, sometimes way more, than they actually needed to, and then they would pocket the difference for themselves. So even though a tax collector might have only promised the authorities 30,000 denarii, what they would try to do instead is collect 35 or even 40,000 denarii. Then they would go to the Romans, they would pay them what they had told them they would, and then they would keep the leftover for themselves. So with all that in mind, let's go back to these two details that Luke gives us about Zacchaeus here. First, he's a chief tax collector. That means that Zacchaeus was so good at this that he wasn't just a normal tax collector anymore. Instead, he had actually been given a whole team of tax collectors to work under him. Think about it kind of like a tax collection pyramid or multi-level marketing scheme, right? It's like Zacchaeus would come to you and say, I have an opportunity that you want to pursue, right? I actually went to one of those kind of meetings one time for a company that's pretty famous around here. Um, the person who was trying to sell me on it said, I actually have a pastor who works with me, and he doesn't take a salary from the church anymore because he's so good at this. And I was like, great for that guy. So at one point, Zacchaeus probably would have collected the taxes himself, okay? But he had apparently risen up the ranks so much that he could instead simply coordinate these other tax collectors who were underneath him and then live off of what they made as the extra for both themselves and for him. And it seemed to be working well for him because, again, as Luke tells us, Zacchaeus was wealthy. And like we talked about, the way that you became wealthy as a tax collector was by over-collecting and then skimming that top off for yourself. And that's what Zacchaeus was doing with his team of collectors. He had them out there collecting what they needed to, but then quite a bit more on top of it, and then they got that extra. 
In other words, Zacchaeus desired money. And as a tax collector in first century Palestine, he had found the perfect way to make it. But then something strange happens. Because one day, a traveling teacher, a miracle worker, a rabbi named Jesus comes to town. And we don't know why, because Luke doesn't tell us here. But suddenly, Zacchaeus finds himself desiring something else. Because all he's really ever wanted is money. He's desired it, worked for it, and he's been pretty successful at getting it. But now there's something else that he wants. Something else he'd like. Something else he desires. He wants to see Jesus. Not meet him, mind you. Not talk with him. Not interact with him. He just wants to see him. And again, we don't know why. Luke doesn't tell us. You know, maybe Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus' miracles. Maybe he'd heard some bits and pieces of his teaching that had floated on uh, down from Galilee in the north to Jericho in the south. And maybe he had heard, like Luke kind of describes in chapter 5 earlier in this gospel, that Jesus had a reputation for spending time with people like him, with tax collectors and sinners. Something that in that time and culture most people would have avoided like the plague, and yet Jesus did it regularly. Whatever it was, Zacchaeus was drawn to Jesus. He felt connected to him. He desired some experience of him. And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking down the main road through the city of Jericho, Zacchaeus wanted to see him. Just a peek, just a glimpse, just a glance. That would be enough. That's all he wanted. That's all he needed. That's all he desired. But there was a problem. Because Luke tells us one more detail about Zacchaeus. He was short. Now that in and of itself shouldn't actually have been a problem. After all, rich and powerful people are often given places of prominence uh, in social settings, including, including on the parade route of some visiting dignitary or, uh, or influential figure who's passing through town. In other words, once he showed up for Jesus' parade route through Jericho, Zacchaeus should have, in theory, been ushered right to the front in a, in a place of prominence in order to see Jesus. So why wasn't he? Well, as Middle Eastern expert and biblical scholar Ken Bailey writes in his contextual commentary, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, the scene informs the reader that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus but was unable to do so because of the crowd. I'm just going to hit pause on this quote for a second. Generally, I really like the 2011 NIV. I think it's a great translation. Um, but it kind of gets this verse wrong, because verse 3 here, it says, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. The Greek is actually the other way around there. Because what the Greek actually says was, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because of the crowd, he couldn't, on account of his being short. That's literally what the Greek says. And so that's what Bailey is saying here. He was unable to because of the crowd. And then he goes on, Zacchaeus' problem was that he was short and hated. Were he respected, the crowd would have naturally made way for such a rich and powerful person. Middle Eastern culture requires such treatment, but Zacchaeus was a collaborator and therefore despised. The collaborator dared not ask the crowd to make way for him and doubtless was afraid even to mix with them. You see, this crowd that Zacchaeus wants to get to the front of in order to see Jesus are the very same people that he's taxed. These are the very same people 
that he has made all of his incredible wealth off of. These are the same people that he has swindled and manipulated in order to grow rich. And they knew it, and he knew it too. And so he dared not try to weave his way through this hostile crowd in order to get that glimpse of Jesus that he wanted. And so instead, what Zacchaeus does is two highly unusual things, at least for a fully grown Middle Eastern man. First, he ran, and then second, he climbed a tree. And we know this story so well that those two things don't really even strike us anymore. But I'll just say, that's, those are two things that no Middle Eastern man, either back then or still today, would do. Again, as Bailey writes, Middle Eastern adults do not run in public if they wish to avoid public shame. Furthermore, powerful rich men do not climb trees at parade routes anywhere in the world. Zacchaeus knew this only too well. So he ran ahead of the crowd and trying to hide, climbed into a tree with dense foliage, hoping no one would see him. You see, culturally, those two things, running in public and climbing a tree, would have been considered shameful acts for a fully grown adult man to engage in. Middle Eastern culture is what's called a shame-based culture, meaning that there are certain cultural taboos that you simply do not break. Because doing so not only offends other people around you, but it also brings shame on you, and actually, by extension, it brings shame on your entire family as well. And in those cultures, that kind of shame is to be avoided at all costs. I actually know something about this, uh, because I lived in Israel and Palestine for a month back when I was in seminary uh, for an internship that I had to do, and we were extensively trained in this sort of stuff. For instance, you do not touch somebody with your left hand in Middle Eastern culture because the left hand is considered unclean. The reason for that is because historically, at least, that's the hand that people would use to wipe after going to the bathroom. And so touching someone with it is considered highly, highly offensive. Even just a hand on the shoulder or a pat on the back. If it's with the left hand, it makes the other person unclean. And so it's something that you avoid at all costs because it offends them and it brings shame on you. Same thing uh, we were told not to cross our legs when sitting in a group because doing so inevitably shows the bottom of your foot to someone else. And because feet are also considered unclean in Middle Eastern culture, showing someone the bottom of your foot, we were told it's very similar to like giving somebody the middle finger in our culture. So I didn't cross my legs for a month while sitting with others. Okay? Those are the kind of things that you just avoid. There are certain things in Middle Eastern culture that you don't do. You don't want to offend others, and you don't want to bring shame on yourself or your family. And two of those things, back then and still today, for adults would be running in public and climbing a tree. And yet Zacchaeus does both of those things. He risks the shame. Once he realizes he's not going to be able to get through the crowd to see Jesus, he starts running. And where does he run? Out of town, actually. None of the commentators go into why, which was really frustrating for me because the nerd in me wanted to know, but multiple of them said that there were actually ordinances at that time against sycamore fig trees being within the boundaries of a town. There were like city bylaws. You could not have that kind of tree within a town. It was something to do with the, how big of the leaves are and it would make a mess. I don't know. I didn't fully understand it. None of them really said why. But for whatever reason, there were city bylaws against that kind of tree, tree being within the city walls of a town. And so what that means is that because that's the kind of tree Luke mentions Zacchaeus climbing, Zacchaeus actually ran all the way out of town 
in order to get this glimpse of Jesus. In other words, as once Zacchaeus realized that he wasn't going to get to see Jesus, this rich, powerful man took off running along the back of the crowd. He dodged in and out of people who were still joining that crowd, past the few stragglers that were making up the end of it, past the last row of houses in town, through the city gate, beyond the city walls, a little further than that still, and then he found a sycamore fig tree. And having already committed one shameful act by running in public, he now committed another, and he climbed into the tree. That's how badly Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. That's how desperate he was. That's how much he longed for that glimpse of him. He needed it. He yearned for it. He craved it. He knew that nothing else would satisfy. It was all he wanted, all he hoped for, all he sought. He made seeing Jesus his one goal, his one ambition, his one object and aim, no matter how silly or shameful he became in the process. And the question for us this morning on on this first Sunday of Lent is this, do we? Do we desire, need, hope for, and want Jesus like that? After all, that's actually what this whole season of Lent in the church year is all about. That's the whole goal and purpose of Lent. This is a season about refocusing our desires, reorienting ourselves as human beings, and recentering our lives around God over and above anything and everything else. Truth be told, that's actually why we have this tradition of fasting during Lent, because biblically and theologically, the Christian discipline of fasting is about giving up things, at least for a period of time, that we need or desire in order to remind ourselves that we need and ought to desire God more. That's why I sometimes poke fun at the idea of giving up things like chocolate or pop or ice cream during Lent. Because that's not really the purpose of fasting. Okay? The purpose of fasting is not about us. It's, it's not about eating healthier. It's not like a you know, New Year's resolutions 2.0. Okay? It's not about eating healthier. It's not about losing a few pounds. It's not about looking bathing suit ready for spring break in a couple of weeks. Instead, the purpose of fasting as a Christian is about refocusing our lives on God, centering ourselves around him, and recommitting our relationship to him again. In other words, when it comes to what we fast from during Lent, the question that we ought to ask ourselves is this. Who or what is it in my life that is currently standing between me and God and my relationship with him? What is making it hard for me to desire God? And then those are the things we give up. And no offense if you've already given up chocolate, but I have yet to find someone for whom the obstacle in their relationship with God is chocolate. Or pop or ice cream or anything else. You know, for some of us, like it used to be for me, it's a relationship. It's another person. We want them. We need them. We desire that more than anything else. For others of us, like Zacchaeus, it's something material. It's a possession. It's wealth. It's security. It's something tangible that we can touch, grasp, and hold on to. For others of us, it's something more achievement-oriented. It's a job. It's a promotion. It's the spot on the team, the role in the play, the GPA. And for others of us, it's something more ethereal because it's something like beauty or affirmation or recognition or reputation. You know what it is for me every Lent? Media. It used to just be social media, and then I quit all of that because I got sick of it anyway. But I'm on NFL.com almost every day, which is funny because the Bears are the same team year in and year out. 
but I still have to read every news article about every team in the NFL. And what I do for Lent is I just turn off all non-essential internet. All the non-essential apps go into a folder on my phone, and I move it to a different part of the screen so I don't have to deal with it. I don't listen to music because I'm normally a music junkie. I don't watch. I, my rule is I don't turn anything on. So I will engage in things with other people. You know, if Sarah and I want to watch a movie together because it's an experience together as a married couple, I'll do that. But I don't turn anything on for myself because for me, that's the thing that saturates my life and takes time away from being able to focus on God. Whatever it is, and there's something for all of us, if we desire it more than God, which is very, very easy to slip into, it doesn't take much, right? Then it's become, in the words of Scripture, an idol. And yet that's precisely what this season is about. Lent is about repenting of that, turning around and running away from that and back towards Jesus. That's what Zacchaeus did here, right? He was willing to make a fool of himself, willing to look ridiculous, even willing to endure shame in his community, all because of his desire to see Jesus. Are we willing to do that? Jesus was. He was willing to do that. We call that the gospel, right? He was willing to go to the cross, scorning at shame, in the words of the book of Hebrews, in order to die for us, to forgive our sins, to restore our broken relationship with God. As Jesus says here, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In other words, he desired us. And so he did what it took to get us. He made us his whole goal, his ambition, his entire object and aim. That's how much Christ loved us. That's how much we mattered to him. That's how much he desired us. And that's how much we ought to desire him as well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's amazing when we stop to think about it, that you desired us. The mere fact that you created us in the first place is your grace. You didn't have to. The fact that you called us into relationship with you is your grace. You didn't have to. The fact that you have saved us from our sins and restored that relationship with you is your grace. You didn't have to. Lord, renew our desire for you just as you desire us as your people. We pray this all in the name of your Son who has made that relationship possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.